This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Moderna now testing its vaccine on kids, even babies as young as six months old. Are the tests worth doing? Would you let your infant get a COVID vaccine shot? We now have a better understanding of how the virus evolves to become more deadly and more contagious. Church leaders might be doing a better job than the government in convincing people to go and get their vaccines. And we'll head to Miami Beach, where the mayor would really, really like spring breakers to keep their masks on. More people flying again for vacation, but that's not where the real money is for the airlines. Let's start with Moderna testing its vaccine on kids. Dr. Gregory Poland is director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Doctor, how young should someone be vaccinated for COVID? Well, we don't know the answer to that question yet. And it really is going to revolve around uh, several things. The safety of doing so and the necessity of doing so. Now, that necessity has two parts. To protect the infant or the child from consequences of infection and to prevent spread to others if that child were to get infected. How does the trial they're doing with the children differ from the people who were, uh, you know, you and me, the adults? So what, what they did in the adults, and appropriately so, were huge trials. I mean, these were about thirty to 40,000 people each because they were determining safety and efficacy. So you have to have a large number because a small number will get sick, and you can measure that difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated. In children, it will take a different approach. This is safety and immunobridging. What that means is we will uh, test this in progressively younger bands or age groups of kids and determine, is it safe? And are they developing or generating antibody levels equivalent to what we see in adults? What about side effects for children? Some, I would imagine, would be obvious, rash, that kind of thing. But some side effects, you know, adults even sometimes have great difficulty explaining what they're feeling. How do you do that in an infant? Yeah, you're right. And, and it's, it's clearly more difficult, although parents are amazingly good about being able to say things like the baby's not sleeping in the same way, not feeding the same way. Uh, has a fever, is listless, uh, et, et cetera. But your point is a good one. It can be, a, you know, a child can't tell you whether they have a headache, uh, as, as an example. Now, maybe that's not an important thing to know about because it's temporary, doesn't require any treatment. But nonetheless, the principle stands that it can be more difficult. Few months, half a year, when do we expect to know something? So what's going to happen is that the uh, Moderna trial is testing uh, the vaccine in 3,000 kids 12 to 17 uh, years old. And as soon as they finish that, this is all in the U.S. and Canada, they'll enroll about 6,750 kids 6 months to 11 years old. The Pfizer uh, group has already finished enrolling just under 2,300 12 to 16-year-olds. So for those older age groups, we're going to have those results this summer, which could translate then into the ability of these kids 
to get the vaccine either before or soon after starting uh, the fall semester of school next year. Dr. Gregory Poland directs the vaccine research group at the Mayo Clinic. Scientists are now getting a better understanding of how the coronavirus evolves into the variants we're seeing circulating right now. Centers around people with compromised immune systems who unknowingly play host to a very clever virus. Dr. Gadi Haidar, infectious disease specialist, director of the Transplant Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program, University of Pittsburgh. So, Doctor, the virus has, what, more time to mutate because it's sometimes hosted by people with an immune system that is weaker. Yeah, that's that's been um, a school of thought that's emerged recently in light of all these reports, including some work that we've done showing that patients with compromised immune systems, primarily people with cancer who are getting a lot of drugs that can suppress the immune system, um, have the capacity to, to have this prolonged infection with SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. For example, if you or I were to be infected, we would probably only be contagious for about seven or 10 days or so. But with these very, very immunocompromised patients, what we're observing is that the virus can persist in their systems for months, even up to six months, according to one, one study that, that, that was published. And as the virus um, persists, it can accumulate all these deletions and other mutations in its genome um, and, and evolve. And, and so that's, that's what we've been observing. And so there's a school of thought now that maybe all these variants that we're seeing emerged potentially emerged from people with compromised immune systems. I will say this is an interesting thought. It's hard to prove this. And we also need to remember that all, all viruses eventually evolve, um, whether or not they're infecting someone who has an immunocompromised system. Yeah. So the idea being, you know, it's going to change as it gets to all of us and moves its way through, but it can get more time to do what it's doing inside the body that can't eradicate it. So inside someone who's who's immunocompromised, does that mean we just step up the vaccines for for cancer patients? Well, I think it means a few things. Um, I mean, I think on a practical basis for guidance for people, this doesn't really change anything. People need to continue masking and social distancing and getting vaccines. Um, I think from a research end, we need to understand these viruses much better. And we need to figure out two things. We need to figure out how best to treat the virus in transplant cancer patients and patients with other immunocompromised systems, because at this stage, there aren't really that many options for someone who has this ongoing chronic COVID-19 infection. And then two, we need to find out if the vaccines actually work in, in uh, people with very weak immune systems. So all the vaccines that are available in the U.S. right now People with compromised immune systems were excluded from the phase three trials that got the FDA to give an EUA for all these vaccines. So we don't really know how these vaccines are gonna work. So the numbers that you've heard quoted as in they're more than 90% or so effective, that's in the general public. It's not in someone who's had a transplant or, is, or who's getting chemotherapy for cancer. I, I mean, common sense and, and based on what we know from the influenza vaccine, I, I can tell you that patients with weak immune systems are probably not going to respond as well. Um, but we need to accumulate data. We're working on studies to try to 
characterize this. I know that other centers are doing this as well. And then what this means going forward as far as how best to vaccinate people like this, this is still unclear, but things that are being floated around are, do these patients need a third dose of, of a vaccine and things like that? And there is precedent for with other kinds of infection like like um, hepatitis B, for example, where you give them the vaccine, you check for antibodies, and if they don't make antibodies, you try it again. So I think time, time will tell um, how we're going to best use vaccines in people with really weak immune systems. So can, can one person with a compromised immune system, in theory anyway, um, basically uh, breed and then disseminate a mutated virus that can, in effect, become in the future the dominant strain? Potentially. And, you know, but I think that that's that's where this is interesting to think about, but it's been difficult to prove, honestly. Um, it is it is a provocative thought, um, but my sense is that you need more than just one person in in order to lead to this, as in this notion of there must be a patient zero where all these variants came from. I, I'm not sure that that's really true. Um, my sense is that these different um, deletions and, and uh, mutations are developing independently across across the globe. And then the reason that they're disseminating so widely is because um, it's it's got to do with something called fitness, meaning that these mutations confer a survival advantage to the virus and they allow the, the viruses to infect people more efficiently. So I think it's more complex than there's you know one human being that caused all of this. Dr. Gadi Haidar, Infectious Disease Specialist, Director of the Transplants Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program, University of Pittsburgh. Lots of people are and have been hesitant to get the vaccine. This is especially true in communities of color due to things like the notorious Tuskegee experiments. Key to opening people up to getting the vaccines turning out to be church, not famous doctors or politicians, local religious leaders making lots of progress. Pastor J. Edgar Boyd, senior minister of the First AME Church in South L.A. Pastor, so what have you been hearing from people in your congregation? 95% of the people I talk to in our congregation, they are actually waiting for their turn uh, in line. Uh, many of them who are seniors who are six, five years of age and older have already gotten there. Uh, the small percentage of those who are, are not getting it, uh, um, we're in discussion with them, uh, making every effort we possibly can to help them overcome the barriers they may have in mind about taking the, vac uh, the uh, vaccine. Uh, and we're having uh, quite a bit of progress. When you talk to people who say, well, I'm not sure I want to take it or I'm worried about it, what's your main argument? Uh, their argument or my argument? Well, actually both. Let's do I mean, both. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what do they tell you and what do you tell them? Well, you know, some of them have um, a, a bit of memory as it relates to uh, what happened with the uh, uh, matter uh, of uh, uh, inoculations and, and, and vaccines uh, way back, uh, the similar study um, that, that was done uh, on African-American uh, men uh, quite some time ago uh, in Alabama, uh, also other matters that uh, women uh, of color and black women more particularly had uh, were being used as research uh, instruments uh, in, in uh, times past. So some of them are having a difficulty getting over them. But I quickly say to them that all of the progress that has been made uh, through legislation uh, nationally and statewide uh, on many fronts uh, have already uh, overcome those barriers. And the things that are in place now are the best measures of assurance that we have 
that that kind of thing, uh, that kind of practice uh, is over. And we're in a new era now and moving in a good and a right direction. Also telling them that uh, if, if they don't think it's good for themselves, just think about their family, think about the members of their community, uh, those whom they interact with from time to time. And they're hearing, they're listening, yes, and, and, and they're appreciative uh, of our uh, uh, conversations. Do you think it's different when it comes from you? Because they know you. We mentioned this earlier. You know, everybody's on on TV and on, on radio saying, I got vaccinated, so so you can you can trust me. But but again, none of us know personally, uh, you know, some of the political leaders, but your people know you. So if you say, hey, I got it, it's OK. You can trust me. I was listening to a show the other day of someone and they were doing a topic on on vaccinations. And there was a guy who was like, I had so many concerns until my pharmacist talked me into it. I didn't believe anybody until this guy that I see in every few weeks when I pick up my prescriptions, he said it was okay. And he sold me on it. Right. Um, ever since the Emancipation Proclamation back in uh, 1862, uh, Black people have really come to the point of understanding uh, on that first day of, of January 1863, uh, when the um, when all of the uh, African Americans, uh, the blacks were who were enslaved, were, were freed. From that time on, the, the black church took its uh, uh, route upwardly. It always advocated for the best interests of the people who uh, are members of its congregation. And every major civil rights uh, instance, every uh, major civil rights uh, uh, era. Uh, black churches have been out there on the front line of making certain that we are uh, advocating on behalf of our community. And as such, uh, the black church has become a trusted voice, uh, become a trusted voice for African-Americans who are in our congregations, as well as African-Americans across the country as a whole. The pastors who represent these congregations and many of the lay leaders who are parts of this uh, they have really earned uh, the right to be listened to, to be heard. And they always uh, always say that uh, what they do, they do not for themselves, but they do for the best interests of the people. So when I share with them, I show them my card that, my, that I've been vaccinated. They take some measure of, of comfort in knowing that if I felt it was all right, based upon the connections that I have and information I get that they may not have, um, they feel comfortable in, in, in beginning to change their minds if they were apprehensive about it in the first place. Did you have any reservations yourself? Uh, I did not. Uh, I, I, I did not. When uh, um, I learned that uh, a, a young black woman, uh, Kismikia uh, Corbett uh, from North Carolina, was involved. As a matter of fact, she was the leading researcher uh, in uh, the whole uh, process of bringing uh, the key elements uh, for the virus uh, to the fore. Uh, I said, what a blessing. It, it could not have happened at a better time, could not have happened for a better community. Any community that, that had a reason, that had a right, or had some purpose to uh, be uh, uh, non-believing uh, in uh, uh, institutionalized medicine, it would be the Black community because of the research uh, history that's had over time. But then to see that the black woman was involved in that research uh, and actually brought a cure to the fore, uh, it made a lot of people stand up and take notice. And um, certainly uh, I appreciated that. And it was one more encouragement for me uh, to go and take the vaccine. I wonder if someone, whoever is calling you, is wondering if they should get the vaccine. And if it is, then we will let you go so you can talk to them and say, listen, I, I was just talking about this actually on the radio. Yeah, uh, check, Get check, that shot. Check, check your voicemail. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Pastor, thanks so much for, uh, for coming oh, on the program you, today. You're quite welcome. And, and I'm hoping that everybody will take encouragement from this. It really is important for everybody to be vaccinated. The country's health and well-being 
uh, it really on the line, and everybody play a part in that. Thanks, bud, for having me. All right, Pastor J. Edgar Boyd, First African Methodist Episcopal Church of Los Angeles. Coming up after this short break, a plea for spring break partiers to follow at least one COVID rule. College students aren't letting the pandemic get in the way of spring break. They've been partying in South Florida, crowding bars and clubs, and that has doctors and politicians worried about super spreader events. This comes as vaccines are out and there's a sense of optimism that the pandemic might be coming closer to an end. Mayor of Miami Beach trying to keep his community safe, asking partiers, follow some rules, wear your masks. The mayor is with us, Dan Gelber. So, mayor, not going too well. Well, it's actually probably worse uh, now than it was then because there are not a, a lot of other places that are open. So we're getting an enormous volume of people. And we're also getting uh, too many people who are acting like they have been cooped up for a year and they want to go crazy. So the result has really been a uh, how do we keep chaos from coming. And and also, obviously, we're in the midst of a pandemic and we have quite a bit of the variant down here and we've got a thousand uh, positives a day usually. So uh, we know that there are real challenges and and this isn't good for those. Give us the the lay of the land of what exactly people can do and and what's open and what the restrictions are like, because we're just in a place now here in Southern California where we just got the indoor dining back at limited capacity. Uh, No bars or anything like that. But but where you are, what what are the rules? Well, the governor has opened up uh, pretty much everything and also uh, made it uh, stopped us from even enforcing our mask mandates. We were very early into the mask uh, usage and, in fact, had given out about a thousand citations. The governor doesn't issue his own order saying we're not allowed to do that. So we've been uh, struggling. We do have a curfew. Uh, There's a county curfew at at midnight right now, which should, I think, continue through this month. Uh, We do require uh, indoor mask usage. We can tell businesses what they have to do. We just can't find them. We have an ambient noise uh, executive order, emergency order now that doesn't allow loud music because the CDC says that's a lousy thing to have when you're in a bar and you're speaking uh, loudly, you know. Yeah, so. yelling, yeah. And by the way, we also have uh, hospitality people handing out masks. We, In my city, which is just one of the cities in our county, we passed out, I think, 7,000 masks on Saturday alone free masks to people walking around. Now, I still think most people are not uh, using them, but we're trying to do what we can. Do you feel politically like you're in a bind? Well, listen, I, this thing, and no matter what you do, uh, you know, half the population thinks it's too little. The other half thinks it's too much. And maybe you'll get someone in your household who will agree with what you did. But, um, (laughs) you know, I'm well past the point of trying to please someone. I I listen to uh, doctors. I try to uh, navigate lives and livelihoods in a thoughtful way. The governor's made it more difficult, not simply because he doesn't let us uh, compel mask usage, but, you know, often in these kinds of, uh, where you're trying to uh, get people to behave a certain way, it's important that uh, leaders all agree. Uh, For instance, when we passed mandatory seatbelt usage, immediately because the law was passed, there was immediate compliance in a large way. Uh, When hurricanes are coming, you know, the governor and lowly mayors like me all agree and say the same thing and people hear it and act accordingly in the right way. When you have all these mixed messages, when you have the governor saying, well, you know, we're not, I don't want people to be forced to wear masks. And then you have a local official saying, you got to wear masks. Well, then you get to choose who you want to follow. 
And it's really become difficult for us to get people uh, to listen to what I think is the right thing to do. I mean, your personal frustration level is how high at this point? Because what more can you do? I mean, you're trying. The cops are out there doing their thing, but there's a bunch of people in your city because this is where people go. Yeah. And by the way, there's not a lot. I mean, we arrested, I think, uh, in the last five weeks, we've arrested 900 people in my little city uh, because we're trying to maintain some level of order. So we have zero tolerance for, uh, you know, open containers and, and, and smoking pot in public and things like that. Now, on the other hand, about a third of the arrests were felonies. And in fact, about half of the people arrested are from out of state. The other, uh, you know, 40 percent are from out of our city. Only 10 percent are, are our residents. But I guess it is incredibly frustrating, especially because, you know, you don't like to see that. We don't want we don't think it's healthy for our residents and we certainly don't want to contribute to this to any surges in neighboring communities or communities elsewhere in the country or or world i was going to ask what is your infection rate there compared to say uh, a year ago not a year ago like six months eight months ago it's gone up and down it's uh, right now the i think the the 14-day average is about six percent in dade county Um, but we have a very high amount of deaths Uh, last week there was one day where the department of health said 52 people died in just dade county and, and remember, you know, it's the biggest county in the state, but there are 67 counties in Florida. We're just one of them, and 52 people died, I think, on Tuesday. Today, it might have been 10 or 15. Generally, a, a one or two dozen people uh, are, are, are perishing from this disease on a daily basis, and about 1,000 uh, positives, and about 50 to 100 people are hospitalized newly every day in Dade County. So, and we have a lot of variant here. So the idea that this thing is over uh, makes no sense. And we are trying to navigate lives and livelihoods, but it's really sort of teetered to the other side in a big way and one that I'm worried about. How much longer till everybody leaves? Um, how long is spring break? Well, spring break probably... We it's going to be all next, summer. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, things are going to change. And it's not really college kids. It's sort of more of a carnival kind of atmosphere. The weather's nice. A lot of kids are coming down. Most of the arrestees are not even college kids. Uh, and I think probably uh, most of the misconduct are not college kids. So it's not sort of, you know, where the boys are kind of uh, feeling where we're worried about too many wet T-shirt contests and things like that. This is serious. Uh, is much more serious misconduct that's going on yeah. uh, that people are very upset about. Very serious, some of it. And I have police, you know, really out there. And we don't like arresting people in these mass numbers because it just creates danger for the cops, uh, for the arrestees who are often high or, or drunk or for, sta- or, or for bystanders. So it's not good for us. I mean, we are a hospitality city, but on the other hand, we don't have an option when there's just so much um, stuff going on that feels chaotic. We can't allow that. And we've got sometimes Collins Avenue, one of our more famous streets, has become gridlocked numerous times a day in the last few weeks. There's so many cars here. So we're getting too many people and we're getting too many people who are acting out and in the midst of a pandemic. So it's really a triple threat. Dan Gelber, mayor of Miami Beach. Mayor, thanks. Airlines are seeing a lot more passengers now that people are traveling for vacation. It makes sense since people who are vaccinated feel safe to travel again. It's all well and good, but the airlines, they want the business travelers back. Joe Brancatelli with JoeSentMe.com. He talked about the importance of business travel for the airlines with WBBM's Jim Gudis. It's interesting to note that the numbers in March for total travel are jumping up. Uh, For the last seven days, for example, we're just shy of 50% of where we were in terms of 
volume in 2019. That's 5% more than we were the first week of March. That said, it's all, it, it seems to be almost all leisure travelers. And while the airlines will take any customers they can get right now, leisure travelers are traditionally not profitable. The profitable people are domestic business travelers, international leisure travelers, and most profitable of all, international business travelers. And there's none of that right now. The missing 50% is where the profit is. So what needs to, what are we going to have to do to, to improve this? In, and obviously get these travelers back. But how do you get these travelers back? And how do you uh, bring about the kind of recovery that the airline industry needs? And does the airline industry need to plan for perhaps not all of that business coming back or coming back as quickly as they hope? Well, the, first of all, let us never have a conversation about airlines coming back without noting the fact that we've given them up to a $100 billion in bailouts, most of it in flat-out grants, a lot of it in very low-interest loans. Uh, so as a people, we've done a, a lot more for airlines than we've done from the average guy walking down North Michigan or the average woman on Cicero. Um, that said, the only thing that will in my opinion, that will bring airline volume back and profits back are everybody being vaccinated so you can go back to traveling. Um, that said, every time business travel has been challenged, the recessions in the 90s, 9-11, the financial meltdown in 2008-2009, a percentage of business travel goes away forever, partially because technology takes its place. And I don't think there's any doubt that that will happen here, too. Uh, people have learned that a Zoom call can do a lot of things business travel can. So that will be an ongoing challenge for the airlines in, say, the next five years. All right. That is Joe Brancatelli, who is the editor and publisher of JoeSentMe.com. A new study shows a lot of promise for the mRNA vaccines to fight COVID, which include Moderna and Pfizer. It finds that the vaccines stimulate the lymph nodes to generate immune cells that provide protection over the long term. The early wave of antibodies are generated by B cells. They're called plasma blasts. Blood tests showed that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine induced a strong plasma blast response. The immune cells that will produce antibodies upon exposure to the virus in years to come, they're called memory B cells, are generated by cells found only in lymph nodes near vaccine injection sites. The response has lasted at least seven weeks with no sign of cooling down anytime soon. I really like this because it kind of sounds like Superman and like heat vision, you know, plasma blast. Yeah, I want, I want a plasma blast. <laughs> you can find us on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Is that what they have at spring break in Miami, plasma blast? <laughs> no, that's something else. Oh. Yeah.